Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground and mortality, because, after all, we are all in this together. My reading is adapted and edited from Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, through its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. My guest today is Catherine Butler. She's a medical doctor. She was a trauma and critical care surgeon who was working at Massachusetts General as well as Harvard Medical School. She recently left clinical practice to homeschool her children. Her writings have contributed to surgical and critical care as well as medical education. She now lives with her family in the woods north of Boston. Today we are talking about her book, Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Katie, what I love about your book is it aims to equip Christians facing end-of-life decisions by really simplifying all that confusing jargon that we're met with. The goal of the book is to try to help Christians to understand what end-of-life scenarios can look like and how to approach them uh, through the lens of the gospel. Um, because so very often, uh, we don't talk about death, as I'm sure you've explored many times. Uh, it's very remote from our day-to-day experience. And our medical technology has been a huge blessing in that it can save life in some extraordinary circumstances. But the dark side of it is that for our people who are at the end of life who are dying, who are actively dying, for whom there's no hope of recovery, when we implement measures like ventilators and dialysis and all these kinds of uh, life support measures that we will use that can save life in the right circumstances. At the end of life, they can cause a lot of suffering and a lot of confusion and place families in some really difficult decisions of trying to understand what do I do? Am I allowed to remove a loved one from the ventilator? Is this causing suffering? And people will appropriately try to approach these issues from the standpoint of their faith, but really struggle to understand how And so my goal with this book is to give people a biblical grounding for what does the Bible actually say about life and death and about suffering, and then to try to deconstruct and demystify a lot of the terminology and the technology we have to try to help people understand when does it help and when does it actually instead prolong death and suffering without hope for cure. And definitely help people navigate the transition from life and Mm -hmm. to the next step. Absolutely, absolutely. So you believe that there are four key principles that arise from the Christian bioethics that can practically yeah. help us. What are these? Yeah. Yeah, So, and I, I would preface it by saying that the tendency when we're dealing with these situations, because they're so emotionally charged, and you might be grieving for the potential loss of a loved one, you're scared, you don't know what the right decision is, we tend to cleave to one principle and not consider the whole picture of what the Bible teaches us about God and about Christ and what that means for us at the end of life. And so the way to really approach it so that we are being very biblically minded is to focus on four things. The first is that, yes, mortal uh, mortal life is sacred. And this is the same principle that um, urges us to protect the unborn, to fight against abortion, to um, protest uh, physician-assisted suicide, because we do know that life is a gift from God, and ultimately our lives belong to Him. Uh, The second, however, is that God ultimately has authority over our life and death. 
it comes to everyone. Um, our times are in His hands, and ultimately all of us will die, and He is sovereign over that as well. So while it's appropriate to try to preserve life when possible, when there's an illness that's recoverable at the end of life, we deny God's grace and the promise of the resurrection when we fight against our own imminent death. The third thing is that we're called to love one another. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to be compassionate and merciful to one another. And that means acknowledging that uh, suffering is something that we should try to abate when possible. We should try to comfort people. And that if medical technology is inflicting suffering without any benefit for cure, we need not chase after it. The Bible tells us to preserve life when possible, but it doesn't demand that we chase after aggressive measures without hope for cure. And then the fourth, which I think is the overriding thing just to keep in mind, is the view of the gospel, which is that death is not the end for us, that we have the hope of Christ crucified and raised. And so even though all these things might scare us so much and grieve us, we have a hope that supersedes all these trappings of the intensive care unit. Do you believe in living wills? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely. Uh, the reality is that few of us, as I mentioned, like to talk about death. Um, but the reality is that when we are at the end of life, uh, our illness often deprives us of a voice. We'll be confused. We can be delirious. The very measures that we'll use to try to support life, like a ventilator, also um, preclude speech. Uh, they will, uh, the tube that you need to be connected to a ventilator goes down to the vocal cords. We're often sedated. So we're not going to be able to vouch for ourselves uh, when the time comes. And in fact, studies of people over the age of 65 uh, at the end of life demonstrate that 70% cannot make decisions for themselves at the end of life. And they require someone else, usually a family member, to make decisions for them. And if we don't have these discussions with our loved ones ahead of time, it puts them in terrible positions in the moment, trying to discern what is the right thing? What would my loved one say? What am I allowed to do? And the impact is very real. There have actually been studies looking at what happens to family members who are put in this position of making these decisions. And the, there are very high rates afterwards of complicated grief, depression, anxiety, even post-traumatic stress disorder of just trying to wrestle with and decide what is the right thing to do. So I am absolutely in favor of advanced directives, uh, a living will to try to delineate what your preferences are, keeping in mind what your values are and who you are as a Christian, and talking with your doctor, talking very extensively and repeatedly with your loved ones to decide what, would, what suffering would be too much, what have I required to be able to live out my faith and to commune with God if it's that I need to have my wits about me so that I can pray, if it's to read the Bible, whatever it is, thinking about what has, have you required in life to be able to fulfill your walk with the Lord and to live your days for Him, and what kind of suffering would be too much, and then to think about the potential technology at the end of life that you might be dealing with, and talk with your physician about it, and talk with your loved one about it repeatedly. And you also encourage people and advocate for them not to be vague, but to really consider their own unique medical history and the facets of their yeah. life and the walk of faith and all of that, too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's I think, the trouble that we run into is if we are dogmatic and too black and white as an overall approach to these issues, you really need to think very carefully. So, for an example, uh, many people will say, I never want to be on a ventilator. 
I never want to be connected to machines. And what they're thinking usually in that scenario is they never want to be ventilator dependent long term, but they don't actually designate that. And it can create a lot of confusion. So if you come into the emergency room and you have pneumonia and you require being on a breathing machine for two days and then you can come off of it and go home, very few people will object to that, right, versus coming in and being in um, end-stage congestive heart failure with emphysema and having disseminated lung cancer and that being an end-stage condition that's not reversible. And that ventilator in that scenario is going to be potentially permanent. Uh, Those are two very different scenarios. So it's really important to go through all the different options with your doctor and say, what am I at risk for? You know, if I go on a ventilator, how, what's the risk that I won't come off of it? And then just to write out a narrative of what your values are and say, you know, if I can, if whatever I'm dealing with is reversible, maybe a ventilator is okay for a certain amount of time versus I wouldn't, be com- wouldn't want to be on it long term. Other people, people who are struggling with ALS, actually will accept a ventilator because it extends their life for another year and they're okay being dependent because they still feel that they can read the Bible and spend time with their family and that is fulfilling for them and they feel like they're walking with the Lord that way. You know, so it's really important to very carefully think about your values and your own medical history and not make just black and white checkbox statements, but wherever possible, outline a narrative. What, what circumstances would be okay for you and what would not? I'm speaking with Catherine Butler, a medical doctor who wrote Between Life and Death, a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care. What can you say to further explain that even though we may fear death and that death is definitely an end, it is really not the end? Mm, Well, just the fact that Christ died and was raised for us, you know, and we have the promise in Him when we place our faith in Him um, that through the book of Revelation, He's going to wipe away every tear and we will be made new and when He returns... All of this will be washed away, and I think clinging to that, and also just a manifestation for how much God loves us that He gave His Son for us. I think it is it provides tremendous hope and comfort in what is otherwise a desolate wasteland spiritually, when you're encountering these things where there's so much suffering and there's so much anguish, but we have hope that emanates even through that. When you were ministering to different patients and their families, how often were they open to really communicating and talking with you about their spiritual walk? Mm, Well, I I should preface that by saying that I actually came to Christ late in life. It was when I was in the middle of my training uh, in the ICU, actually. Wow. You know, so I was pretty timid about sharing my faith because um, medicine is a secular institution, very much so. There is a fantastic book, it's highly academic, but it's fantastic, by uh, two doctors, it's a husband and wife team, the last name is Balboni. It's called Hostility to Hospitality, and they actually look at this divide between spirituality and medicine, and they did a whole series of studies in Boston across four different hospitals where they interviewed uh, cancer patients and then the physicians and nurses caring for them, and there was a stark divide between patients who would voice spiritual concerns, and about 85% of the patients did, and not just Christian, but all, all different faiths, and only 1% of, of people were referred to chaplaincy of that same cohort, which is just astonishing. And there have been additional studies that people uh, who are in discussions about their loved ones who are very ill 
will raise spiritual concerns to physicians, and they get no response, and they get no referral. You know, and that speaks to what I was a part of for a very long time, which is this academic culture uh, that's very highly secular, and spirituality is seen as something that you don't delve into. As I matured in my faith and deepened in my faith, I would openly pray for people, and I would say, may I please pray for you? Um, And so that was a way where I felt like I could finally connect with them on the level that they were. And uh, I had some instances where people were openly wrestling with issues about God's love. Um, I could think of a particular instance where this poor mother, her teenage daughter, was dying, and she blamed herself. And she had had some doubts, and she'd been Catholic and then converted to Protestantism, and her family had told her that the reason that her daughter was dying was because she had strayed from Catholicism, and she felt that God was punishing her. And so that was just heart-wrenching. and just gives a window into the kind of grief that people are struggling with in these scenarios that they may not voice. You know, so I was just honored that she was able to talk to me about that, and we, she was someone I was close enough to that I was able to hug her, and we just prayed together, and we talked about what Jesus had done for her. And that, you know, you think back to Job with his miserable comforters and him, and they them claiming that there's a one-to-one correspondence between suffering and punishment, and it's always about punishment, where, in, as in reality, God could be working it for tremendous good that we don't understand. Um, you know, so that was a way, thankfully, through the Word and through prayer, to walk with her in that moment. But I find that, in general, it's very hard as a physician, unless um, you've got a real good relationship with a patient, and they've divulged that faith is critical to them, uh, to open and engage in those discussions, because the culture is almost hostile to it. Are you willing to share what happened to you, where you decided Mm -hmm. that you had a different walk in life? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I was raised a nominal Christian. I mean, I was secular, basically. (laughs) we, uh, We never attended church. I had an illustrated Bible as a kid that I flipped through but didn't really understand any of it. Uh, And we celebrated Christmas and Easter, but for the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, it really had nothing to do with Jesus. And I thought that being a Christian meant being a a good person. And it wasn't until I was in my ICU fellowship, so I was studying critical care, and I witnessed a miracle. Um, I was had, I should preface it by mentioning that I was also at the time steeped in agnosticism. Uh, I went through a very harrowing time in the emergency room during my training where part of our job was to spend 24 hours in the emergency room taking care of every surgical problem that came through the door. Uh, so aneurysms that ruptured and trauma and appendicitis and toe wounds I mean everything. It was my job to see them and initially stabilize them and to figure out where they needed to go. Um, And I had just this awful night where I had three consecutive cases in a row of young kids, teenagers, um, being assaulted. And one of them was uh, a 20-year-old who had been assaulted in his bed with a baseball bat, and he had a four-year-old child who witnessed the attack. And he was bleeding into his brain, and I was struggling to stabilize him so that the neurosurgeons could take him to the operating room. And the image of this four-year-old boy just burned into my head the idea of him watching this and thinking, what is the rest of his life going to be like that he's now orphaned and he saw it happen? And then right after that, 
I had a 15-year-old who came in with a stab wound to the chest. He had no pulse, and in that scenario, we actually have to open up the chest in the trauma bay as a last-ditch effort to save the person. And he had a huge stab wound and one of the blood vessels going to his heart that we couldn't fix. And I had to go and tell his family. And it turned out that he was living with his aunt and uncle and had moved here to the U.S. from Guatemala. And they were trying to give him a better life. And he had been assaulted somewhere in South Boston. And then the third was almost immediately after that, my pager went right off off again as I was talking to this poor family. And it was another 15-year-old who had been shot in the head. And he came in with his heart beating, but with his pupils dilated and not responsive to anything because the bullet had gone through his brain and he was brain dead. And in this such situation where you just feel dead inside looking at this kind of evil, I tried to clean up his wounds so that it would soften the blow for his family. And someone who was ill-informed brought his mother into the room while I was in the middle of the procedure. And she crumpled to her knees and howled, and I tugged off my gloves and ran from the room, and I just cried, and I spent the rest of my shift feeling like I had been gutted. And thereafter, I had been up for 24 hours. I was tired. I was dirty, but I didn't go home after my shift. I drove two hours along the Mohawk Trail in Massachusetts. It was October. It was this stunning day where everything is just in jewel tones, and I went to this bridge across the Connecticut River, and I stood out there really trying to connect and feel something, feel some connection with God and trying to pray, even though I didn't know who God really was, but just needing, having this thirst to connect. And I couldn't pray. And thereafter, I fell into a very deep existential depression because I couldn't fathom how a God could allow this kind of suffering. And I struggled with the fact that everyone who had attacked these poor kids had looked at them and seen nothing, seen no worse. And I said, how could that be, God? How could you allow this? And so I said, well, there must be no God. So I was agnostic for a good one to two years thereafter and very deep depression to the point of suicidality. Uh, And the only reason I didn't actually take my own life was because of my husband, because I knew it would crush him and I couldn't stand to hurt him. And then I was in my ICU training one day while I was in the midst of this, just kind of going through the motions of life, trying to get through each day. And we had a gentleman who had suffered brain injury. He'd um, stopped breathing for a time, and the lack of oxygen to his brain had damaged his brain. And he'd been through a very long course. And the best that the neurologist anticipated he would recover would be to be in a um, minimally conscious state, which is basically that your your eyes are open, um, but you're not aware of anything around you, and you don't interact. And so he was in this state. And his family would ask every day, do you see any improvement? And they were just having such a hard time accepting. And I just felt so terrible for them. My heart went out to them, you know, because we're just like, he's not going to get better. But someone you love, it's very, very hard to accept that. And then one day, his wife was belting out tunes from Tiffany from the 1980s. And we could hear from across the ICU. And I came, what's going on? And I walk in the room, and she's got a cross the size of an avocado hanging from the ceiling of the ICU room, and she's wearing another one. And she says to me, Dr. Butler, I prayed last night, and I woke up, and God just told me everything's going to be okay. And my heart sank for her, because I thought, no, everything's not going to be okay, you know. But I just smiled at her, and I said, I hope that's the case. 
And she was insistent. And she said, nope, you pray and you watch. He's going to be fine. Uh, and then the next day, I was seeing another patient on another room in the unit, and his family calls me, Dr. Butler, come here, come here. And I walk in the room, and they say, he moved his foot when we asked him. And I said, oh, no, it's got to be just a reflex. You know, and I just felt terrible for them. He said, no, no, he did it. So I asked him to move his foot. He didn't listen. <laughs> so then they did it. They called. They said, Ralph, move your foot. And he did. And then the next day, he moved his hands. And then the next day, he was turning his head toward them. He had a full neurologic recovery, complete recovery, talking, communicative, full cognitive capacity. And it was one of those things that was just so much against the odds, and it was response to prayer. And that moment made me realize there is something so much bigger than ourselves at work here. Even though in medicine we adhere to protocol and we quote studies and we research and we try to unlock the mechanisms of everything in a precise mathematical way, there is something in control here that we have no idea about. And my husband at that time had been had sought out a church on his own because he himself was also going through a bit of a crisis. And he convinced me to pick up the Bible. And I read the Gospels, and then I read the Book of Romans. And what really struck me and left me awe-inspired was how we have this question of suffering. God, can you, how can you allow suffering? But Christ saved us through suffering. And so there is tremendous meaning to our suffering. And when we suffer, it's not because God doesn't love us, because Christ suffered too. And that was just, my life was never the same thereafter, and I'm just so grateful to God for bringing me to himself. This is a direct quote from you. For years mm -hmm. I had convinced myself that as a doctor, I sacrificed moments with friends, family, and my husband for the greater good. The call to heal the sick and tend to the injured superseded all else. The Lord heaped yeah. blessings upon me, and I hurled them back in the name of service to him. How do you feel about that statement now? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, that's, that's reflecting upon a time in my life when my identity was rooted in my work. And I think he has just been so merciful because he used that work to bring me to himself. So it was never really about me and what I was doing. It was about what he was doing through the people around me and through me uh, to show his glory. It's interesting to listen to you. You're very honest and you're very profound and you talk about all of these atrocities and these things. And most of us who don't spend our time in emergency rooms, maybe we're there once because we injure our, we jam our thumb or something. A lot of us aren't there because of crisis. We, um, yeah. you know, we don't get, the, we don't get the ability to be there, but you were there day in, day out. And it really makes sense to me that one of your end of life goals is to spend as much time as possible in the quiet of your backyard. <laughs> the contrast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I'm an introvert, <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I feel most connected when I've had the chance to study and to write and reflect, and to be in the wonder of God's creation and the beauty of it. I think there's a hint of that for everyone, where His His creation can speak His majesty and His glory into your heart, and that's definitely true for me. I want to talk about your transition from the medical world mm -hmm. to all of a sudden homeschooling your children. How did that work mm -hmm. out for you? Mm. 
Uh, so this goes back to, you know, my, my identity for so long was really wrapped up in my career. And I very arrogantly presumed that I was going to be the breadwinner, not because I needed to be, because I need to clarify that there are some people where the woman needs to be the provider and where the woman is her best self for her family and her children when she's got a, an illustrious career. And I, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm very privileged to be able to have stepped away. Um, but for me, it was a point of idolatry. It was beyond providing and serving the Lord. It was really that I idolized my career um, over the Lord. And I didn't realize that until I had kids, because the plan that we had always forged was for my husband to leave his job whenever we had kids, and he would stay home and help um, get them to school and all that. And then when I had um, my children, it was from the very first moment, a very clear message I felt from the Lord that things are not going to go as you want them to, uh, because my son, the birth was very traumatic. I had an emergency C-section. He stopped breathing the first time I held him, and I had to do resuscitation there, mm. like in the postnatal room, and it was a, a wake-up call. And then thereafter, uh, we found out down the road that he has special needs. He has sensory processing disorder. He's also highly gifted, so traditional schooling was not going to work for him. But I felt increasing pressure between work and home um, because I was working 70 to 90 hours a week, Wow. And I loved my job, but I was very, very bad at creating margins. I felt such a moral obligation to my patients that I struggled to cut hours. When I cut hours, I would wind up filling them up again. And I'd go home, and I felt it was wrong for me to turn off my phone or my pager in case one of my patients was struggling and the residents needed to get in touch with me. I had a really hard time setting those margins. And in the meanwhile, my family was really struggling in my absence because my son we found out had special needs. My husband wasn't aware of it and was trying to struggle working from home and taking care of him. And then when we had our second, things just continued to escalate. And I remember going to a conference when she was nine months old. And it was kind of the straw for me that broke the camel's back. I was going to a conference in Chicago to present a paper, to give a lecture. I think it was a lecture on um, medical education. And I picked up my backpack. That's all I did. And my nine-month-old looks at me and bursts into tears because she associated that backpack with me leaving. And I thought, I'm teaching her truth claims about a backpack. But what am I supposed to be teaching her? You know, Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7 tells us pretty clearly that our role as parents isn't just to ship them off to Sunday school and then, okay, they'll be fine and get their education in the Lord then. It's supposed to be something that's infused throughout their days, you know, where we, when they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed at night and walk through the way that we're teaching them the ways of the Lord. I said, how can I do this when I am never here? And I'm teaching her that, yeah, backpack means your mom's going, but am I really present enough? And I think the what finally did it was I had this case that normally is one of those cases that makes you glow as a surgeon because it's so um, satisfying. I had a, a young gentleman who was homeless, had been kicked out of his house, like errant path who got into trouble and got, um, he was stabbed. He wasn't shot. He was stabbed. Also, another case of being stabbed in the chest, had a hole in his heart. Um, I took him to the operating room, saved him, fixed, you know, the hole in the heart, got him through his course in the ICU. And when he saw me and follow up in the clinic, he says to me, you know, I've turned my life around. This whole experience has inspired me to be a nurse. And I'm living back at home now. I'm going back to school. 
And it was one of those wonderful moments where you say, wow, you know, I really made a difference. But instead of that thought, what I really, what I was wrestling with was, you know, if I hadn't been there that night, one of my colleagues would have been. But my kids have only one mom. I'm replaceable at work. I'm not replaceable right now in their youngest years when I need to be shepherding them to know the Lord. And so that was really the moment when I said, okay, I think I need to leave. And it was a very, very hard decision. I felt that perhaps I was actually being a poor steward, and I still struggle with that sometimes. Am I being a good steward of the knowledge and the skills that God's given me medically? But honestly, it was such a point of grace because my understanding for why God was calling me home was rudimentary, but since then we've realized that my son's um, limitations are really significant, and homeschooling is pretty much the only option that would work for him. And it's also just allowed us to to grow as a, as a family and um, very gently and effortlessly, I feel like, shepherd them in the God's ways. And so it has been a tremendous blessing for us. It's never what I had planned, but God has been so faithful throughout, and I'm just, I praise Him. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Catherine Butler. If you want to learn more and hear more stories from this real wonderful, lovely lady, please pick up her book, Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.